like you are part of the story of the Bible. Bible stories aren't just random history. God invites us to step into and live out of the stories of his work and his people. I'm here with uh, Paul Lamasella. So Paul, I know you teach a course called Understanding the Biblical Storyline, um, where you think about the story of the Bible as one big story. Today, we want to talk about a little bit more about uh, maybe some of the smaller, the individual Bible stories along the way and how uh, we should relate to those. Specifically, you mentioned uh, you recently did your dissertation on how Second uh, Peter uh, uses the Old Testament. And so maybe some of the background can come out of that. If you have some comments on things you learned there about how we should hear, think about Old Testament stories for ourselves. Yeah, um, this was something that I reflected a lot about in in thinking about Second Peter. And I thought about it also, we'll talk about this later probably, but this one passage where Jesus does the same thing for himself, and that's really interesting. Second Peter uses some weird Bible stories. Um, that was one of the, you know, interesting things in writing the dissertation was, yeah, I'd be like talking to my wife and be like, yeah, so I'm working on, oh, I was working on these weird stories, like thinking about the story of Sodom or the story from Genesis six, where these, the, these divine beings come down and have sex with human women. And it's just like, that is a weird, weird, that's gotta be like the weirdest story in the Bible. And yet Peter sees in those stories that they connect to the drama that he and his readers are living in. And, and, I, and I think part of the way we tend to apply scripture, we tend to be more comfortable in didactic portions of scripture where there's like a clear application point, like return good for evil or you know honor your father and mother, whatever. But then when we get to these stories, we expect either a crisp moral from them uh, and we think we can extract sort of a lesson out of the story, then we got it. But Peter doesn't, I mean, he doesn't do that in the same way. I mean, he, he does that somewhat, but for him, the story itself is far more meaningful and, and important. I think the part of the way he applies the story to his readers is not just don't be like this guy, but be like this guy, but also look, you need to understand. So I can use this. I'll use the Sodom story as an example. Peter has a this sort of meta vision of the history of the world, which he gets from the Old Testament. So and in, in first second Peter three, he sort of unpacks this and in two, chapter two. There's the initial creation uh, of the world out of water by the word of God. Then that creation gets destroyed by water at God's word. And then it the current world is going to be destroyed by fire, according to God's word, which will result in the new cre new heavens and new earth, Isaiah's new heavens and new earth. So that's his big schema of biblical history. So with that background, that meta background, he looks at the story of Sodom and he says, you know, what's happening here is a microcosm of what is awaiting all of us. Um, so when, when he looks at the people he's writing the letter to, he sees people who are following Jesus but they're tempted to into um, immorality. They're tempted to licentiousness by these other, whoever these opponents are, these libertine teachers or whatever. Uh, and he says, you know what? This is just like the scenario in, in Sodom. Remember the story where you have Lot and he's, though he's a flawed individual, he's characterized as a righteous person for various reasons. 
why fundamentally because he didn't really belong there his heart he, he wasn't part of the city there was lot's wife who seemed to she came out of the city but you know didn't make it in that famous way the the false teachers the people who are pulling you into idolat- into licentiousness uh, into sin now are are just like those people who are trying to pull lot and his family into sin and you don't get you as the reader do not get to choose what story you're living in but what you do get to choose is which character you're going to play so are you going to so there's a section in second peter 3 where he he talks about someone who has tasted of things of god you know gone the right path and has barely escaped he says but then gets uh sucked into immorality and becomes like the, the pig who uh after washing itself, goes back to it. Where does that language of barely escaping come from? Well, it seems very much like he's saying, you know, you could wind up being like Lot's wife in this situation. Or you could be like Lot, who's an individual, sort of a lone figure, who's outnumbered by people pulling him in all directions, but in the end makes it. Uh, And it's not just a random story because it's not even just an example story because he's saying the destruction by fire that hit Sodom is a microcosm of the destruction by fire that's about that's going to hit the whole world. So we're living in a full-blown version of Sodom, of Sodom's story. We are all actors in the same drama, but a new part. And so live your life in a way that recognizes when you look around and you see threats, you, you see uh, temptations, don't just view those as random temptations, but remember that these, these actors represent the people in Sodom, and that you need to decide which part of the act you're going to play as you await the final judgment. So that's, I think that's, I don't know if that's a good example um, of how he uses that story, at least. Yeah, that's helpful. And let's, let's dive into that story a little bit. So you said the story basically applies to our situation. Um, Peter applies it to our situation both his original listeners and I guess us now throughout the same age awaiting Christ's return. What we get to choose is, are you Lot's wife or Lot? Or I guess the people of Sodom in some cases. Um, Lot's described as righteous and God delivering him. Are there other options there? Uh, Because I'm thinking about a way that I think it's kind of traditional for Mennonites at least, or at least I've heard it uh, multiple times is to back that story up a little further and they look at the contrast between Abraham and Lot. Abraham and Lot are going to part their ways and Abraham lets Lot choose. And the moral of the story is something like Lot is greedy or Lot is not sufficiently cautious about the dangers of associating with society that's not generally godly. And so it's often presented as, are you going to be Abraham or Lot? Yeah. And I think that's valid as well, though I think that that's not the part. So for Peter, he's not thinking of that part. Gotcha. Why? Part of the reason is that he sees his readers as living in the midst of, they're already living in the midst of- They're in Sodom. Yeah, they are. Not by their own choice, but like they're surrounded. First Peter has the same idea. Like you're aliens, you're strangers, you're living in a place that that's full of iniquity, basically. So that other lesson is, is important, though I don't, stories are multifaceted and there's, you know, there's, there's all these dimensions for Peter though. I think he's picking up on, on those other aspects. 
And Flood is another, the, Noah's Flood is a huge, important story that Second Peter picks up. And Peter recognizes, I think, as others, others did, that there are links in Genesis between the Flood and Sodom narratives. So he's, he's drawing on the elements that sort of correlate there. Like, just one fact, interesting factoid. The word rain shows up after the, uh, after the flood narrative the next time is in, is in Sodom, where God rains down fire and brimstone to destroy a city. And there's all these other correlations th- between the story of, of the flood and Sodom. And Peter, I think, takes those and, and says, look, just the way he says, he combines the, the idea in chapter three, where the earth is created by water and it goes back to water and then is going to be destroyed by flood. He says, the final destruction is going to be cosmic like the flood, but by fire like Sodom, puts them together. Uh, And then those corresponding features, I think he sort of maximizes in his use of the stories. So to me, just a more general question about uh, these use of stories and seeing ourselves in the stories. We use stories to cultivate identity. You know, American school books tell stories of people that are taken to be American heroes. And we grow up hearing those often just simply by being in an American educational system. Anabaptists, at least in a lot of cases, um, like to retell stories from whether it's the 1600s or the 1800s as a kind of both here's a moral example, but also just kind of drill in like this is our identity. Is that the same kind of thing you're talking about um, where some of these biblical stories become this you know, they shape our identity because, hey, now we identify with David and Paul as our community or whatever. Yeah, that's a good question. I think yes, but I think for the biblical authors, it's grounded in the fact that this is objectively true, that there's a connection between us us and the, and the things we're telling stories about. Now, some of the examples you gave, similar thing obtains. But with, say, a lot of the New Testament letters, which are written to largely Gentile Christians or, or mixed of Gentile and Jewish Christians. Part of what's going on is that the apostles are saying, hey, you Gentiles, um, through your f- trust in Jesus, you're being brought into Israel's identity and Israel's story. And now you need to let your identities be shaped by Israel's stories because now they're your story. As I read one author talk about this, basically it's like you're given a new family history. And so you need to you need to connect with all of this that's gone before you because this is now your story. And redemptive history, the stories in redemptive history are meant to shape God's people. And so you you know you're you're take to take that identity. But it's grounded in the idea that well two things. One, that in Jesus you are indeed brought into the people of God and therefore you do share an identity with with these stories. And second, that these individual stories are all connected to the meta story of redemptive history, which is the true, like the true history of the world, mm-hmm. uh, and so they're not just stories, but they're true in ter- in a sort of historical. Uh, they represent how the world really is and how the world really will end up, type of thing. So it's not just that King David did this; it's not just the individual story of the action, King right. David or David before he was king killed Goliath, but it's also, I don't know what it would be for that story, but it's also representing oh, something could, much bigger. I could bigger. talk for an hour on that story. <laughs> That's one of my favorites. 
I did a session uh, last year at, at Church Engage. We did a breakout session where I um, we talked. I used that story as a, as a way of talking about um, how to think through context, biblical context. Hmm. Um, and it's it's an incredible story because you know it's taken to be this. We often think about it as this children's story, right? Um, and yet it's it's the story itself and its context is making a a far more beautiful and profound point. Let's just say that I think we often identify ourselves with the wrong person in the story. Um, David is not a random kid in the story, <laughs> but he's the one who's just been just been anointed as Israel's true king. He's been anointed, but he hasn't taken the throne. And as the anointed king of Israel, who's not yet taken a throne, he defeats Israel's enemy on behalf of his people while they sit there and do nothing. And that is the guy who then later gets promised an unending dynasty and is fulfilled in a man from the line of David who is anointed to be the true king but hasn't yet taken power and in that time defeats our true enemy while we stand back and do nothing. Like that's what the story of David is all about. And it's like, I don't know, for me that's just like mind, that's mind blowing because it's connected to the rest of the themes uh, in Samuel, the book of Samuel, Samuel, I love the book of Samuel, book of Samuel, but also the rest of the biblical meta narrative. So we shouldn't see ourselves as David there. Well, or the one so sitting in the a, camp. Well, okay. So if we want to be really technical, um, probably we, especially as Gentiles should be to th- think of ourselves as the Philistines. But, um, if we, if we're thinking of ourselves as, as being part of God's people, then yeah, essentially the main thrust of that story has us, if we're part of God's people, as being the people who who sit there and do nothing. However, and then what's interesting is that do we have no, no role to play? And well, interestingly, after the giant is defeated, they go and kind of there's mop up operations, right? And that's what the Christian life is all about: sin, the devil, and death have been have been defeated, and we have nothing to do with no contribution to that. The rest of our lives is kind of defeating a defeated enemy is is a fight is is work but it's an enemy that our king has already defeated however because stories are multi-layered and have multiple applications i think there's another sense in which it is entirely appropriate to see in david an example of trusting god that we can identify with so yes I, i don't think it's wrong what i tell people is i don't think it's wrong at all to identify with david and say that god will defeat giants in your life not at all, but that's just that's really not the fullest interpretation. In the same way that we're supposed to take inspiration of an inspiration from and identify with Jesus as well, since he did come to be a human as well as a king. I mean, not yeah, in exactly. not in the grand story of redemption, but in his life and how we approach life. Yeah, Luther really helpfully talks about um, Jesus as gift and example. And how first we need to receive Jesus as gift and the gospel as gift, as something that God has given, a present that he says that God has given to us that we receive by faith. And then secondly, as an example for how to live our lives. Um, and both of those are very, very important, but it's also very important to have them in, you know, in the right order. Any other stories you want to mention or passages from the New Testament that call us into particular There's stories? There's one more that I think is really, really interesting. And that's Jesus' temptation in 
well, and Matthew or Luke, but I'm sort of partial to Matthew's rendering. This is, I think, a passage that we often point to and we say, see, when you're tempted, quote scripture, right? Like that's kind of, that's that's been like a line of, of application that I've heard, which is right, but not, doesn't go nearly deep enough. Um, because I think this example from the life of Jesus, of how Jesus used scripture in his real life, really, really underscores this idea that what it means to apply scripture is often to step into the scripture story, to see the world as though we are part, as though it is, what I say, is sort of colored with the crayons of the biblical stories. So what Jesus does in the wilderness when he's facing temptation isn't just pull random verses out of his head uh, that he thinks apply, but he goes to the passages in Deuteronomy where that where Moses is reflecting on Israel wandering in the wilderness with no bread and no water and recognizing that. So where he says um, here, I'm actually going to, I'm just going to pull this up really quick because it's, it's just amazing. So his first temptation as recorded in Matthew to turn stones into loaves of bread. He says, he quotes, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. But what is what Jesus is thinking of in this larger passage from Deuteronomy chapter six, sorry, chapter eight, is this. Moses is saying to the people, remember that Yahweh your God has how Yahweh your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, so that he might humble you to test you, to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commands or not. He humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna so that you would know that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes out from the mouth of Yahweh. So Jesus isn't just picking up an interesting verse he memorized in Sunday school or in Shabbat school or whatever, but he's saying, no, no, no. I recognize that just like Israel in the wilderness for 40 years, God has me in this desert to test me to see if I will be true to him. I'm recapitulating the experience of Israel in the wilderness. Then the same, like the next ones, um, he, he goes from the, all three of his quotations are from the same story. Um, the other two are from Deuteronomy 6, but thinking of the same, the same thing where Moses says, when you, when God brings you into the land, take care that you don't forget Yahweh. It is Yahweh, your God, that you shall fear him. You shall serve and by his name, you shall swear. So that's where he gets the one from. And then the other one, where he says, you shall not put Yahweh your God to the test. He says, uh, this comes from Deuteronomy 6.16, where Yahweh says, you shall not put Yahweh your God to the test as you tested him at Masa, which is the place that Israel tested God when they needed water and wondered if he was really with them. They asked, is God really among us or not? And um, Satan is saying, hey, you know, do a trick to prove that God's with you. And, and Jesus says, no. I am not going to question whether God is with me in the wilderness. I don't need a trick. I don't need a miracle. I'm going to trust, unlike the Israelites who, when in their time of need and desperation, questioned God's faithfulness to them. He said, I'm not going to question God's faithfulness to me. And it's through this experience and how Jesus fulfilled it, recognizing that he stands in the same story of Israel, but succeeds where they fail. This is, this is part of what makes him the true Israel. What is the application for us Christians from this story? I think it's not just quote Bible verses, but recognize that now we share in this story. And just like in the Lord's Prayer, Jesus says, do not lead us into temptation, right? He's kind of bringing us into the same, the same thing. In our time of waiting before Jesus' return, are we going to respond like Jesus did or like Israel did type of thing? But it's, 
It's all for Jesus. His response to the devil was shaped by his understanding of God's work in Israel's story in the past. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, that's that's helpful. When I think of the temptations as, you know, Jesus didn't repeat the sin of Adam and Eve, but it's also here Jesus didn't repeat Israel. Yeah, yeah. Experience in the there's, wilderness. There's both, yeah. Which is helpful. So as uh, kind of a final question here, how do we learn to see ourselves in these stories in the right way? Uh, does this happen automatically simply by spending enough time with the stories and retelling the stories and thinking about them? Uh, is there other specific things we can do to help our, help us see the stories and ourselves um, in this way? Man, it's a, it's a good question. Um, I think it's multi-layered. So first of all, I think you see what you're trained to expect to see. And so just simply being aware of some of these ideas when you read scripture will help. So that's one. Two, um, I think it's in some ways the most helpful thing to really, really get very familiar with scripture's meta story. It's big story because it's going to help you to read the script, individual scriptural stories, not just as random one-offs that I apply to my life, just like I would apply one of Aesop's fables to my life, but I see it as part of the larger redemptive whole. Mm -hmm. That's number two. Number three, I'm going to say love good literature and read other texts, other stories that pull on you. There are stories that I've read, good works of literature, in which which have helped really shaped my my ability i think to when i read scripture think oh yeah i'm gonna i should see in scripture some similar similar features and similar ways of communicating and pulling drawing me in and stuff like that so i think that's another another helpful avenue yeah thank you for that paul um i like that encouragement to pay attention and work at it and uh, it might seem strange to say read other things to learn how to read the Bible, but if you think about it, to know how to read the Bible, you have to know how to read. And to know how to read, you're going to have to get practice reading a bunch of different things, probably. So that makes yeah. sense to me. And for, for me, I feel like I feel like one big problem among Christian readers is that we sort of think of the Bible as being like its own genre, almost. Like completely distinct from any other type of literature. And so more the more we read it like we would any other good text in a weird way, the more it impacts us, I think. It's sort of paradoxical, but that's how it's been for me, I think, and other people I know. Yeah, well, thanks so much for joining us today and helping us think about Bible stories and how to read them. It's been great to be here. For more information about Anabaptist Perspectives, to read our blog, to donate, and to see videos of the conversations you hear on this podcast, visit anabaptistperspectives.org. We love to hear from our audience, so leave your feedback in the comments for this podcast, or send us a message through our Facebook page. Thank you for listening, and we'll be back next week with another episode of Anabaptist Perspectives. Thank you for joining us for this episode. We invite you to join our monthly partner program. Monthly partners are key to the financial sustainability of Anabaptist Perspectives. Partners also gain access to bonus content, including our exclusive podcast where we respond to audience questions and comments. Sign up at anabaptistperspectives.org.